when we talk about emergencies and business continuity events, we're talking almost like the extreme bad things happening. So you've got your happy path, your unhappy path, and your extreme unhappy path. So how could we then create a persona of a customer going through that extreme unhappy path? What are they experiencing as they try to interact with uh, our organization and are not receiving the services that they need? And some of those services very important to preserving their, their safety and welfare. In a world filled with chaos and a myriad of risks, there is opportunity. You're listening to Riding the Wave, project management for emergency managers, where we discuss how we adapt and rise above those rolling waves of hazards and threats we face and rise to the top. And now your host, the president of Pinnacle Performance Management, Andrew Boyarski. I have as my guest today, Thomas Kroll. Thomas is working in the UK and internationally. He's a seasoned expert in business continuity, crisis management, and emergency management with a proven track record in both the public sector and financial industry. He's led significant projects, including the Rail Resilience Review for UK Rail Infrastructure, Thomas is recognized both for his contributions to major incident planning and has been an influential figure in international standards development, specifically on emergency management capability assessment and public warning. And he's commended for his leadership in the field. I'm also very honored to say, and pleased to say, he's a close colleague of mine and a fellow alum of the Halt International Business School. So thank you very much for joining the podcast, Thomas. Thank you, Andrew. It's uh, very kind of you to invite me and nice to be talking with you again. Well, I know that there's a lot for us to discuss, and I'll start off on the topic of resilience in the post-pandemic situation, since uh, I know, you know, we were sort of ensconced for a number of years uh, at home. So, uh, and before we explore some other areas of resilience, how would you define the term resilience in organizations? (sighs) I was having this debate with a colleague the other day and uh, we were discussing the difference between operational resilience and organizational resilience. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, that differentiation uh, has existed in the, the field of risk, operational risk and other types of risk like financial and strategic risk for a long time. Uh, almost a separation that uh, uh, financial risks like liquidity failings and capital failings that caused the financial crisis Uh, well, they put many organizations and economies out of business, so to speak. So is that resilience? In one sense, Mm -hmm. societal resilience, definitely, economic resilience, financial resilience. It's not entirely operational resilience that most business continuity managers or emergency managers would think about, but there's a relationship between the two, right? An interplay, uh, a cause and effect. Mm -hmm. So uh, the, the, the tricky thing is with this word resilience, it's becoming... Uh, such a commonly used term in the media and uh, our vocab these days. But the tricky thing is, where where do you draw the line between what is resilience and what is just doing good business, managing an organization well? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so for me, I, I, I personally, again, back to the, the kind of the practitioner view of emergency management and operational uh, uh, kind of resilience, I think of it in that operational uh, uh, guise and to just put some scope boundaries, but you can't, you can't not work with your colleagues across the organization if you're going to be doing it well. 
I remember during the actual pandemic putting a, a small article out there on LinkedIn and I think I called it uh, uh, fair weather business models mm -hmm. and um, I think the, the, there's many companies uh, reflecting on this more and as I look at the background uh, that's uh, behind you now in the name of your podcast riding the wave we know that during COVID there were many organizations that were able to ride the wave because they they pivoted they're able to take advantage of the the new kind of societal paradigm uh switch to digital if they weren't already double down on that and they were literally riding the wave there were others that had some sort of uh buoy that's just keeping their head above water and then uh thirdly there were those that sadly uh didn't have didn't have the capital didn't have the operational capacity didn't have the culture or the mindset and uh uh were severely impacted and uh some of those businesses uh went out of business during covid on that point one of the things that we see is in our post-pandemic world is a greater level of risks uh increasing civil unrest that's taking place we've seen an uptick in the number of cyber attacks especially with uh the war going on in in gaza and in northern israel and lebanon um, how are corporations addressing resilience in this current uh, situation with increasing risk factors that they're facing? So it depends on the sector. I think uh, there's many organizations that are still, uh, still are operating, as I uh, referred to in my previous answer, they're still operating fair weather business models and hoping it'll never happen. But can you blame them to some extent because of uh, economic pressures and cost of living uh, uh, implications that's uh, very apparent across the, uh, the Western world? Mm -hmm. So uh, with uh, resources uh, uh, very tight, uh, it, it is difficult to make the case to start thinking about bad things that might happen. But as you pointed out uh, eloquently in your question, these bad things are happening uh, more and more in an interconnected way. And I think that's the point, the interconnected way. Society now is uh, so uh, interdependent from a systems perspective on supply chains, whether they be for physical goods, but also digital, because there's so much we outsource now um to to third parties uh, in that digital supply chain so um i think it is ringing true for some sectors and uh the thing that's making it ring true is uh regulatory pressure especially in financial services uh we're seeing uh, in the uk uh the financial services regulators the bank of england and the financial conduct authority have some uh, very uh, robust and uh, stringent approaches now to operational resilience. And we're seeing the same apply across Europe with the uh, CER, Critical Entities uh, Resilience Regulations, uh, the Digital Operational Resilience Act, DORA. And I think there's similar moves being made in uh, North America with uh, coming out of the SEC for uh, exchange traded uh, businesses. So um, those regulatory pressures, I think, are government starting to wake up uh, to the need to regulate what, what I talked about before as operational disruptions in a way that they haven't had to before. So one of the things that I, having read uh, pieces of both your review and the recommendations report, we're going to get to that in, in uh, a little bit later in our mm. discussion here is... This is the, um, the real work that I've been doing recently. 
Correct, correct. Um, how, how is risk management, perhaps we might refer to this as enterprise risk management, which is much more of a, a modern approach, much more uh, broader and uh, more inclusive, looking at those sort of panoply of risks, not just sort of operational risks, financial risks, those sorts of things. Um, and for those who are unsure about what I'm talking about, as far as enterprise risk management, uh, please go back, look at some of my previous podcasts, because there's a lot of information, a lot that I've covered on enterprise risk management. And you can also Google it and find out more. Um, as a little plug for my colleagues who work at the Risk Management Society, there's a whole treasure trove that they've published on enterprise risk management. So how is that being integrated into emergency management and continuity programs? Mm. Can I can I almost switch your question there, Andrew, and say how is emergency management and then uh, continuity programs hooking into the organization's risk management practices? Because um, I would say more often than not, most uh, uh, sizable organizations have robust uh, risk management practices in place that link into their organizational and corporate governance requirements, the way things get reported to senior management, the way things get reported to the board, and the way the organization gets generally governed. So um, I think the work that I've been doing uh, that you refer to in uh, recent years has been with the uh, the railway industry across the United Kingdom doing a, a review of emergency management and uh, its effectiveness. And um, I think if I was to step back and almost give the headline points, um, everything that you would expect from an emergency management perspective gets done to lesser or greater extent from organization to organization, different train company or infrastructure manager. Uh, but they're doing uh, all of the key activities. And if you were to go and look at any of those activities in isolation, you would say, oh, great, that's that's working. But as soon as you step back and you try and take a systems look and well, the integrated emergency management approach is what we try to do in the review. And we try to see how are these parts integrating to make meaningful sense. You don't exercise for the sake of it. You know, you exercise to validate a capability. You don't have a capability for the sake of it. You have a capability that will respond to a risk. You don't manage a risk for the sake of it. You manage a risk because the impact of that risk manifesting will have a negative consequence. Um, and more importantly, actually, because historically a lot of risk management has been about how do we protect the organization, but from almost a kind of a mindset shift of that risk management now is how do we uh, manage that risk down to limit the consequences to the end user, whether they be a member of the public, whether they be a client or a customer, or the overall market or industry integrity, uh, especially, this is especially relevant for critical national infrastructure. So whether it be power, transport, uh, water utility supplies, uh, health, for example, they're, they're all part of an integrated society. So the analogy that I found to almost try and uh, bring this issue to life is that uh, when we looked at the industry, we saw that all of the jigsaw pieces were in there on the table. Some of those jigsaw pieces were neatly clicked together in the right way. Some of those jigsaw pieces had been jammed together uh, and they weren't supposed to go together. And some of the jigsaw pieces uh, were just absolutely out of alignment. Every jigsaw piece was there, but were they put together in the right way to tell you what the picture was? And the picture is what's that risk exposure 
and have we managed it down to a level that is within our organizational risk appetite and within the appetite uh, of the society that we're serving and might judge us and then i suppose the added test almost of that is to ask yourself if the if something very bad had happened and in the uk in recent years we had the manchester arena bombing um we've had uh some major train derailments in scotland uh and we've had various other incidents and these types of incidents they go to public inquiry where uh, scrutiny is put on them and, and then of course covid we have uh, uh, a, a national inquiry that's going into uh, on at the moment into the uh, the country's uh operational and political response to covid so if you are at that point um having to sit in front of the inquirer um, at one of these, uh, I suppose the equivalent to you would be uh, in North America would be um, some sort of Senate hearing, I assume. Um, if you were to be sitting there, could you hand on heart say we did everything in the right way to manage the risk down in a transparent and informed manner? Most jurisdictions in the United States as part of being integrated into a national emergency management, you know, uh, what we call the National Emergency Management Framework uh, that comes out of the, the Federal Emergency Management Agency uh, is required typically to do an after action review and improvement mm -hmm. plan as, mm -hmm. as a standard protocol. So, and I suppose the very important point on that is that that shouldn't be years down the line. Uh, that that should be uh, you know akin to a hot debrief, um, so we can learn uh, rapid lessons. That doesn't mean it's rushed, but yeah. uh, it shouldn't be delayed by bureaucracy. There should be almost stages. So one thing that's very interesting, there's a lot of public debate around the UK's COVID inquiry at the moment, is that they're releasing it in uh, almost chapters, um, working through different topics. So it's not a, a five-year inquiry with one big at the report at the end. So uh, any learnings can be... Uh, identified and learned as soon as possible. That's a really good point. So I was at a conference uh, earlier this week, and one of the points that was brought out by one of the presenters is uh, we need to focus on that hot wash, uh, mm. and on that initial hot wash, because my experience has been that when uh, after the fact, you know, individuals will start to think about how do I uh, package this in a way where there are fewer political ramifications for me and my boss or people on my team Indeed. that you know, it doesn't blow back on us. Well, the point is when we, we do these after action reviews, the it's supposed to be done in a no fault environment. But mm -hmm. we all know there are political and legal ramifications for all of this. Uh, and in the reality of the situation, if we can actually take those critical learnings and start applying them immediately, uh, we can benefit from them. So not that we shouldn't try to look at the whole and try to make systemic changes. You know, those are, of course, you know, longer term require a lot more uh, will and and resources to do to make those changes. Um, so I want to then pivot now to you know, the uh, rail resilience project, hmm. uh, emergency management review that you did. And you mentioned this, uh, I think, a great analogy of the jigsaw puzzle problem. You know, uh, and so I want to, in addition to that, could you discuss some of the key findings and recommendations from that report? I know. So for those who who are interested, 
I will publish a link on here to the publicly available document that uh, you so, uh, you know, I, I'd say so thoroughly did. Um, you know, this is going back now. Like 2021. 2021. So we're talking about two years. Um, so there's a longer one. But what, what were some of the key findings and recommendations from that? So I suppose it's that point about hooking into organizational governance. Um, so we want to bring uh, emergency management out of this back office uh, activity that's not thought about uh, by the the day to day uh, organization and its uh, uh, its managers and uh, middle management and top management level. Because when you have a a somewhat safety critical industry uh, like rail or transport in general, it doesn't necessarily need to be just rail. I'm sure this applies to aviation and uh, other forms and modes of transport. Uh, there is a very, very strong culture of safety. Um, and you can almost see that as a very kind of uh, kind of low level incidents, slips, trips, falls, kind of medium sized incidents. Mm -hmm. Inherently, transport's going to get delayed. So they have to have a response capability. So culturally, that leads to um, almost uh, we can do it kind of mentality because we go through it regularly. The question you have to ask yourself is, does that scale to the, 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 the large events? Sim simply, the industry, again, I think aviation uh, is, is, is a key one for this, but uh, also rail uh, in the UK, uh, rail industry heavily regulated for security purposes. Um, so it gets is very good at managing uh, counterterrorism type threats mm -hmm. by virtue of the regulation exi that exists, uh, puts resources into it. So very good at low level health and safety, very good at big security incidents. But what about this space up here? All these other threats and hazards we talk in uh, emergency management. And I know it's commonly done in the US as well about taking an all threats and all hazards approach. The biggest analogy of that, please do correct me if I'm uh, wrong on this, and I'm sure some of your listeners may want to comment on this. But uh, as an outside observer, uh, looking towards North America in the early noughties, uh, we saw um, a shift in the mechanics of uh, governmental response to emergencies post 9-11, shifting FEMA more towards Department of Homeland Security, and everything became very counterterrorism centric and then it was not so many years after that that hurricane katrina happened and there was lots of failings in capability and that maybe uh i, I i'm not uh i'm not an entirely formed commentator on this but that may be because uh they took a very security uh focused view and uh took their eye off the all hazards all threats uh mantra um so i think that applies still in many sectors so one of the findings was step back um, and without any uh, pre-assumptions, assess the risk, use diverse sources um, to assess that risk and then take a proportional risk-based approach to it in the deployment of those preventative controls and the responsive. But really, really importantly, and I think this is the key other finding, that you have to know that um, at any point in time, those controls are still operating effectively. Uh, it's all well and good uh, to have deployed them in an effective manner, 
but unless you're uh, testing them on a regular basis, how do you know they're effective? And one of the ways that we do that is emergency management exercises that works for the responsive controls. Uh, it's not always robustly done for the preventative controls uh, and the detective controls. Um, so uh, when we started looking at exercising, as, as I said, all the jigsaw pieces were there, exercising got done. But uh, again, quite commonly, the, when a lot of the standards out there, uh, whether it be the business continuity international standards or the equivalent on emergency management standards or even the legislation says you must do regular emergency management exercises. To most people's mind, that defaults to um, once a year. The choice of threat or hazard that gets exercised in any one scenario is usually what's flavour of the month with uh, those that are participating. Is it a true representation of all the threats and hazards? And I, I would ask an organisation, how do you know you're doing the right exercises and the right amount? If you've got if you've got two risks that really trip your threshold of being the the ones that you're most concerned about, maybe it's just two. But if you have five different threats that all have the same level of impact, maybe you need to be testing all five of those threats in discrete exercises. And uh, then another point is organizational change. It's great to do crisis management exercises, but commonly, uh, I'm sure many of your listeners will have experienced this themselves. You run an exercise, you come back the following year, hoping to build upon that, that the, the, the competency that the groundwork has been set in year one and you're going to come back and it's going to be additive and you're going to mature the team's capability only to find that at least 50 percent of the participants have moved on into new roles on new organizations so you're back to square one so there's this there's a balance to be found between these kind of big bang exercises and uh versus a little off a little and often uh, where you're giving uh, top management uh, regular exposure um, to uh, or ongoing uh, training and uh, uh, a small amount of stress testing, essentially. Um, and I think organisations can't make that decision about what's right unless they've stepped back and look at what are the risks we're trying to manage. It's an excellent point that you make. And this is one that I have had conversations with clients and with colleagues is how do we actually maintain and sustain these capabilities it's one thing to actually build a system and build you know a system that includes you know the staff the stuff the spaces uh you know the um and the support infrastructure but as you point out if you have attrition and you don't have that uh you know transition that takes place that did that briefing and that institutional knowledge that we maintain mm -hmm. um, how is that capability maintained in the out years and i've seen many you know actual applications that have been sunsetted that were quite useful applications that were built uh quite frankly in response to a pandemic response really great ones and then suddenly mothballed and put you know put aside and then when the time comes we need something that we can actually use oh it's not there why because it wasn't maintained, it wasn't supported, uh, funding wasn't, you know, provided so that, uh, you know, with uh, new server systems, basically we, you know, it's configured appropriately and things like that. So and did, uh, yeah. did, 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 did the people managing that capability, that program, even know what it was there to do, why it was implemented in the first place? You talk about that or uh, that corporate, that organizational knowledge 
um, is is the pass down of that. There's a concept of Chesterton's fence. Uh, I think I'm quoting that. We can uh, make sure we put a link uh, connected to it if I've uh, got this wrong. But uh, if you're driving down a country road, um, uh, nothing around you at all, but then you come to a wall with a gate and that gate is closed and you go through it, should you close that gate again? You, you ask yourself, why was that gate there in the first place? It's, it's stopping people moving through, but it's almost incumbent on you to say, why was that gate put there? What is it stopping getting through? Mm -hmm. And don't just arbitrarily dismiss it. Uh, and uh, we all too often, uh, when our organizations try to make resource cuts and operational efficiencies, we sometimes forget why uh, those uh, measures, uh, those ways of doing things were put there in the first place. And part of being uh, one, one of the ways an organization bec can become resilient is by building redundancy, redundancy into its resources, redundancy into uh, its time frame and the way that it processes things. So if something does go awry, it has a little bit of redundancy to pick up the slack before causing the impact to its end users. But in a, in a drive to uh, find organizational efficiency, it's all too easy to get rid of that redundancy uh, because nobody was there to say, hey, we put that in because we had this instant where that happened. And then we realized we needed that redundancy in case it might ever happen again. It's interesting because I've had discussions with certain folks around, you know, we need to be able to go back to very basic paper, what we call, you know, POTS, plain old telephone system. I still have a landline in my home, uh, which rings every once in a while. You know, it's there's 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 a reason that we want to have some levels of redundancy that's there. Um, you know, just in time systems, cost cutting, those are sort of the enemies of this. I wanted to uh, get to the uh, RDG guidance note, the Rail Emergency Code of Practice that was recently released. How was that received and how is it being implemented? So it's one of a series of uh, documents that uh, we have been working on with uh, other, other companies have been working on as well for the UK rail industry. Um, they're a form of um, self-regulation, codes of practice, and uh, what they do is we've tried to take, take the, the findings from the, the review that was done in 2021 and try and translate those into a set of how emergency management can be done in that integrated way where the puzzle pieces all join together and we can see the picture. And then importantly, um, how integrated emergency management links into governance, the governance at organizational level and the governance at industry level. So we can start uh, doing things like um, self-assessment of capability. So we can start producing management information that says how good a job are we actually doing at emergency management um, and hopefully making a meaningful difference for passengers and rail users. Um, so the specific document uh, that I've been working on with colleagues is on the uh, anticipation assessment and prevention of emergency management risk, which really tries to enshrine a lot of what we've been talking about in this conversation um, in a robust all threats and hazards way, identify uh, your exposure to disruptive events, um, and then take uh, an informed, um, contextualized um, understanding of how you might prevent and respond and one thing that's really important um, in doing so is no 
who the end users are and what the impact might be to them if the bad thing manifests. How is it going to affect those stranded passengers? Um, and, and this really, uh, I think, is one of the biggest shifts that's now happening in um, our field. Uh, I'll call it resilience in general is uh, and especially uh, coming through from the financial services regulators. It's about asking the uh, the banks and the insurance companies to get out of their own heads and ask if we have a disruption, how is it going to impact our customers and how is it going to impact our vulnerable customers? If you have a customer that is uh, unemployed, receiving state benefits, um, is living a subsistence uh, lifestyle, has dependents in the household, whether it's elderly family or children, um, and they are dependent on that payment coming into their bank account and they can't buy food, then that's very quickly causing intolerable harm as the regulation talks about it. So uh, that's a very different mindset to this is going to cost us X million on the balance sheet and uh reputational damage no it's actually what tangible harm is it going to cause to the end user and i think that needs to flow uh flow more into other industries uh in a previous travel company i worked for they talked about putting the passenger first and i think that particular company did but there's many organizations out there that make these statements as lip service but haven't really um, thought about it from a customer experience perspective when the disruption is happening. I'm sure you may have seen in the news, I know you're on the other side of the pond, as we like to say, but uh, how some of the airlines, specifically Southwest Airline in the United States, was fined as a result of delays that they allowed to manifest. Uh, and we're talking about millions of dollars that they were fined by the US government for failure to meet certain service standards. Mm -hmm yeah no absolutely and that's just that's just one example of uh how it's coming more to the fore this this thinking one one approach that i would like to see more is i'd like to see collaboration between uh emergency managers and resilience professionals with uh customer experience professionals mm -hmm. now those customer experience professionals are usually spending a lot of their time designing the customer journey and working out how to delight the customer whether it be the way that they interact with the app whether the way that uh, the person answers the phone, whether the way that the, the box sounds and feels when you open it, you get your new Apple product out and it makes a certain noise and they, they have a expertise in uh, delighting the customer, but they also have that deep kind of almost psychological, sociological understanding of the customer. So uh, one of the, the common terminology in their uh, uh, profession is about happy path and unhappy path. Happy path is everything goes right. The product as we or the service as we uh, uh, designed it meets the needs of the customer and hopefully delights them. Unhappy path is where something goes wrong for the customer. It might be a delayed train. It might be um, uh, there's a, an erroneous transaction on the bank account that the customer has to call up about and uh, go through some sort of complaints process they're almost the business as usual bad things going wrong when we talk about emergencies and business continuity events we're talking almost like the extreme bad things happening so you've got your happy path your unhappy path and your extreme unhappy path <laughs> yes so how could we then create a persona of a customer going through that extreme unhappy path what are they experiencing as they try to 
uh, interact with uh, our organization and are not receiving the services that they need. And some of those services, very important to uh, preserving their, their safety and welfare. That's a great point. And I, I would, I wanna, I'm gonna put a pin in that one for a future uh, discussion that we can have. I think there's more to mine there. Uh, and I, uh, I, whenever I have conversations with you, Thomas, I always walk away uh, better educated. So oh, thank you. Uh, thank and, uh, it's a rich discussion. So um, I wanna thank you very much uh, for taking some time aside uh, to speak to me and to our listeners in the podcast. And uh, we look forward to having you on at some point again in the future. Thank you. And hopefully we can do it in person. You can come to Scotland. Or, uh... I, will do, I will gladly do that. And then we can. There we go. That sounds good. And if, uh, uh, if any of your listeners want to uh, reach out to me, then uh, uh, I welcome any LinkedIn connections. I will put your uh, contact information into the podcast, uh, you know, in, so that people can actually see it. They can click on that and link and reach out to you. Um, so um, again, we were uh, speaking to Thomas Kroll. Thomas is uh, based in the UK. He also works not only in the UK, but internationally. Uh, he's an expert in business continuity, crisis management, and emergency management. He's done a whole host of work with the national rail, financial industry, and, uh, and government as well. So thank you once again. Thank you, Andrew. In a world where emergencies are becoming increasingly complex and varied, the need for effective coordination and planning has never been more paramount. Enter the Project Management for Emergency Managers Workshop. This unique online learning experience is designed to equip you with the tools and strategies to streamline your emergency management efforts. Over the course of six engaging weekend sessions, we delve deep into the principles of project management, tailored specifically for your needs as an emergency manager. Learn the skills needed to navigate the complexities of emergency management. You've been listening to Riding the Wave, hosted by Andrew Boyarski, president of Pinnacle Performance Management and clinical associate professor in emergency and project management at NYU and John Jay College.